So we're talking about intention today and choice. Appropriate, of course, for the beginning of the year. But we, as Unitarian Universalists, are uniquely situated as the recipients of a long line of choice makers. Choice makers. But there's, there's actually another word for choice makers. Anyone want to guess what it is? It's actually from the Greek. Anyone heard the word heretic before? <laughs> from the Greek, heretic means one who makes a choice. One who makes a choice. Now this is, in the spiritual context, this is seen in contrast to orthodox or orthodoxy, correct or true teaching. Now heresy was the result of a choice. A choice to follow some other idea, some other concept or belief rather than simply bowing to the authority of the church. And as a chosen faith, as a free-thinking and open religion, Unitarian Universalism counts among our spiritual ancestors a long line of brave heretics who chose to profess their conscience and truth despite sometimes dire consequences for doing so. So I'm going to speak briefly about a few of these and then... Let me explore a little bit of what their choices mean for our choices going forward. So our first stop on the Heretic Express, as it were, is fittingly with a man named Origen. All right, who remembers me talking about Origen before? We, we've mentioned him several times. He's very important. He's a cleric from Egypt who became really the first true Christian theologian, the first real scholar, religious scholar of the Christian movement, and he lived from about the end of the second century through the middle of the third century of the Common Era, dying in about 254, the year 254 or thereabouts. And he was also the first Christian scholar to rely on textual analysis. She actually compared many versions of texts from the Hebrew scriptures and what would become the New Testament writings to reconcile or refute the claims made by the young Christian authority. Now, most notably, Origen found no textual support for the claim that Jesus, the Son, was equal in power and significance to God the Father. Now, according to Origen, the father, God of creation, had two sons. Logos, the word, the word from which creation sprang, and then later, his later son, the son of the flesh, who was born as Jesus and ultimately would be sacrificed for the sins of humanity. Now, this wasn't exactly heresy at the time, but this view would fall from favor quickly in the history of Christianity as the Christian institution gained in power and authority. But perhaps even more significant for Unitarian Universalists today than Origen's understanding of the Godhead and the relationship of Jesus 
is what's called, again, his eschatology, or simply his vision of the end of the world and life after death. And Origen's eschatology was radical for his time, certainly and arguably still radical, in that he claimed a total and complete reconciliation of all creation with God the Creator. So he said that all souls, no matter how evil or profane, would ultimately be restored to grace, reunited with the rest of creation. Now in Greek, again, this is called apocatastasis. Anyone remember what we call it in English? Universalism. Again, let's say it together. Universalism. Now, the Christian authorities, to the extent that they existed at the beginning of the 3rd century, did not accept universalism as a claim. Though for years, Origen himself would be a venerated and popular teacher throughout early Christian communities, and is still considered by the Catholics to be a church father, if not a saint. Now, ironically, Origen himself would eventually die of injuries sustained while imprisoned in the Roman persecution of Christians in the wake of uh, a plague that hit the Roman Empire in the early 250s. So again, I think he died around 255, 254. Many of his teachings, of course, including the nature of Jesus and the concept of apocatastasis, that universalist claim, have been labeled heresies by the later church. Now, the next century would see significant growth of the Christian faith throughout the Roman occupied world, culminating with Constantine, the Emperor Constantine's famous conversion, making Christianity the official state religion of Rome. But as Emperor, Constantine faced several problems, one of which was the many conflicting practices and doctrines that the religion had because until that time, Christianity had developed essentially in secret, at least in isolation and seclusion for fear of Roman persecution. So in 325, to, to answer some of these questions, Constantine called for the first of the great Christian councils, held at Nicaea, where he charged a large group of priests, about 300, 350 priests, um, who also include bishops and other Christian leaders to decide once and for all the official position of the church on a number of issues. But one of these was the nature of Jesus as related to God the Father. Now one of the priests, a North African named Arius, who remembers talking about Arius? All right. Need to hear something seven times to remember it. So this is this is maybe four or five. So we're getting close, people. Arius would argue passionately for the belief that Jesus was, like Origen claimed, subordinate to God the Father. Now he said, if Jesus were the Son, then isn't it logical that the Father must be older than the Son, even just slightly? Most fathers come before their sons, he said. And of course, this is the same exchange that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Remember our service on Santa Claus? 
Mass. Well, this is the same meeting where the future Saint Nicholas would become so enraged at what Arius was saying that he would rise from his seat and strike Arius in the face, knocking him to the ground while he was addressing the council. That actually happened. But after weeks of debate and increasing drama, not the least of which was the assault on Arius when he was speaking by the future Santa Claus, <laughs> Constantine got impatient. Good old politician, he wanted some results. And he decided, y'all need to make decisions, so I'm gonna lock the doors and not give you any food until you come up with a decision. And it worked very quickly, the next night in fact, in a slightly less than two-third majority decision, the council voted to affirm the view of Arius's rival, including St. Nicholas, and created the Father, Son, Holy Ghost thing that we might know as the Holy Trinity, and expressed by most Catholics and most Protestants today in what has come to be known as the Nicene Creed, right, coming out of the Council of Nicaea. Now, Arius himself, formerly a great teacher and, and respected priest, had at once become a pariah who, when his view was refuted at the council. He would be immediately excommunicated for his beliefs and exiled and denied access to Christian worship and the practice of communion. But as church politics often do, the winds shifted briefly after Nicaea and a, and a subsequent pope, this is after Constantine dies, a subsequent pope invited Arius to return to Alexandria and receive communion. This was good news for Arius, he was overjoyed and he would start the long journey from his exile and um, uh, it would have been in Algeria, what is present day Algeria, across North Africa to reconcile with the church he'd served for so long. But unfortunately, somebody recognized him and poisoned him while he was en route, and he would die before ever being reconciled with the church that he loved. Now the Arian view of Jesus as neither equally powerful nor co-eternal with God the Father is to this day labeled as heresy by mainstream Christianity. Now we have to kind of fast forward a little bit to find the next of our choice makers. It's actually over a thousand years later. It's in the wake of the Reformation in the early 16th century. It was sweeping Europe. We find another choice maker, another heretic. His name was Michael Servetus or Miguel Cervantes. From Spain, he was a true Renaissance man. He studied and was proficient in theology, medicine, and law. He mastered half a dozen written languages and uh, developed a reputation as a physician so great that the royalty and aristocracy of Europe sought his care for decades. He was the first Westerner to discover and explain the process of pulmonary circulation, uh, which is the way oxygen gets into the blood through the lungs as pumped by the heart. 
He was also the first scholar to study the Hebrew scriptures side by side with the Greek New Testament, which of course relies heavily on the earlier Hebrew texts. And it was actually an extension of what Origen had done. And he actually cites Origen as the, the influence and inspiration for his technique. Called the textual critical method, Servetus was able to prove, at least to his own satisfaction, that Origen and Arius had been correct in asserting that Jesus, though perhaps more elevated than a normal person, was neither co-eternal with God nor as powerful. Now for all of his brilliance, again, he was the leading physician in Europe, and we now know that his inflammatory tome entitled On the Errors of the Trinity, uh, he would write at just 19 years old. Servetus, despite his brilliance, was inexplicably naive when it came to politics and relationships. He engaged in a long correspondence with John Calvin, with whom he had actually gone to seminary, and whose reformationist career he had admired from afar. He wrote with John Calvin to argue his points, apparently in the hopes of convincing Calvin and 1,500 years of Christian church that they were wrong about the Trinity. And Servetus would be honestly surprised when his arguments were easily dismissed and just as easily labeled as heresy. Now, Calvin had been developing his own theories at the time, unbeknownst to Servetus, and one of them, ironically, was this idea of predestination, or the idea that we are each destined, we are all determined for heaven or hell, and there's nothing we can do about it, there's no free choice at all. So in an ironic twist of events, Calvin, who himself was wanted by the Inquisition for heresy, turned Servetus in to the Inquisition for heresy. And Servetus would be captured in France. He would be tried for heresy and convicted not once but twice. And he was sentenced to death in Paris by the Roman, the Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic authorities. But he was able to escape prison because a lot of people in Paris were beholden to him because of the excellent medical care he provided to, again, these, the aristocracy and even the royalty, the French royal family. So he escaped. But once free, where did he go? He went to Geneva, where John Calvin was supreme ruler. So he actually shows up at Calvin's church one Sunday morning to hear Calvin preach. But Calvin knew who he was. <laughs> they went to school together. So of course, Servetus was recognized. Of course, he was recaptured, retried, convicted of heresy in John Calvin's court, and then burned at the stake. The last known copy of his book on the errors of the Trinity chained to his leg as he died. Now, during the trial where Calvin himself testified, he would later recant some of the harshness of his testimony, but long after Servetus was dead. 
Servetus famously spoke only the following words in his closing argument defending himself. He said, quote, To kill a man is not to refute an idea. It is simply to kill a man. Now, our brief exploration into our heretical lineage will take us now to Hungary and Transylvania, and then really the couple decades after, after Servetus died, where the one-time Calvinist priest turned Unitarian, the great Reverend Francis Davi, affirmed both the Arian anti-Trinitarian view of the Christian Godhead and the right of individual conscience to dictate one's beliefs and practices. By the King John Sigismund, David was named Bishop of the Hungarian churches in Transylvania. And he famously argued for tolerance and religious pluralism at the Diet of Torda in January of 1568, which resulted in the first edict of religious liberty in the Western world. So who's good at math? Yeah, what is, 15, what is January 1568? How is that significant? 450 years ago this month. In fact, as part of our service next Sunday in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. Day and the beginning of Kindness Week, we will honor the 450th anniversary of the Edict of Torda. Now, Francis David would himself transfer his affiliation from Calvinism to the new non-Trinitarian church, becoming effectively the founder and patron of Unitarianism in Transylvania. And incidentally, there are still Unitarian churches in Transylvania. It is the dominant religion in Transylvania to this day. And many of those churches are named in honor of David. And it was David, in fact, who first used the phrase that we need not think alike to love alike. I say that every Sunday, and it's 450 years old. Now, unfortunately, as things happen, the political tide shifted quickly. And when King Sigmund died, a Roman Catholic came to power in Hungary. And David was, guess what, tried and convicted of heresy and would die in prison shortly thereafter, a mere 10 years after the Edict of Religious Liberty was signed. Now the ruins of the prison where he died in Deva is now a memorial to David and includes plaques posing on either wall, one that says tolerance and the other says dialogue, which were the two guiding principles of David's ministry and the two guiding principles of liberal religion in general and Unitarian Universalism specifically to this day. Now each of these, each of these heretics, each of these choice-making martyrs, each teach us about who we are and from where we came as a religious movement. The details of our Unitarian Universalist cosmology have changed a little bit in 2,000 years to be sure. We're no longer anti-Trinitarian, for example. We're no longer exclusively Christian, for that matter. But there are elements that each of these men taught us that 
that might find their way into our worship and our lives. The idea of apocatastasis, we translate into the concept that we all come from and ultimately return to divine love. To the affirmation of religious liberty and right of conscience and determining the beliefs we hold, we all owe all of these, all of these, to Origen, to Arius, to Servetus, to David. We owe all of them a debt of gratitude and honor. And I would argue we owe it to ourselves and to those brave souls named and unnamed who came before us sometimes making for us and for the sake of their truth the ultimate sacrifice to continue to make our choices ever in love. Now, we don't ask much of our members in terms of belief. We don't ask people to believe in a specific God or any God at all. But we are all tasked at all times to enter into dialogue with others and practice tolerance of differences in the hope that we might each come to understand more of the great truth. But we enter into this choice with intention, with purpose, and with sacred calling. This indeed, this, this understanding of religious liberty, true liberty, the sacrifices we might make on behalf of inclusion, and the choice we make every hour of every day in the name of love may very well be our heresy. But if to choose is to be a heretic, let us be heretics who choose the path of love. Let us be the heretics who choose the path. May it be so, everyone. Blessed be.